So, um, has anybody ever seen, heard of, or, or, or watched the NFL Combine? Some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, some of you do. Um, it, the NFL Combine is where the guys who are eligible for the next NFL draft are brought in to be inspected. I don't know. It's kind of like a meat market, truthfully. It's kind of weird. But anyway, from the NFL's website, here's an explanation of what takes place at the NFL Combine. And I promise this has something to do with what we're talking about this morning. Each February, hundreds of the very best college football players are invited to the NFL Scouting Combine in Indianapolis, Indiana, where executives, coaches, scouts, and doctors from all 32 NFL teams can conduct an intense four-day job interview in advance of the NFL draft. Now, in addition to just doing uh, interviews with these people, sitting down, talking to them, testing their intelligence, te I mean, they, they put them through everything. It, it's a pretty rough deal. They also have uh, some measurable physical drills that they put them through. Uh, I want to just kind of go through these real quick. The first one is the 40-yard dash. That's, it's all about speed. How fast is this person? The NFL combine record for the 40-yard dash is 4.22 seconds, by the way. 40 yards in 4.22 seconds. That's insane. Mine's like 16.78 or something. But... Yeah, right. Yeah, my poor old four-cylinder couldn't do that. Uh, another is a bench press. Now, we're not just talking about finding a max. What they do is they take 225 pounds, put it on a bar, and then the person does as many reps as they possibly can with 225 pounds on the bar. Record? 49. That's insane, y'all. Okay, I, I know I could not do it once. 49 times a guy did it. Vertical jump. That's just about standing still, jumping as high as they can. Record is 45 inches. Anybody here four foot tall? That's higher than Asa. You four foot tall? Yeah, that's, that's how the guy stands there and he jumps straight up and his feet would be above Stephen's head there. Broad jump. That's just standing still and jumping as far out as they can. Record? 12 foot 3 inches. This is crazy. Then they've got a three-cone drill. Now, this one's interesting. This tests the athlete's ability to change directions at a high speed. Three cones in an L shape. He starts from the starting line, goes five yards to the first cone and back. Then he turns, runs around the second cone, runs a weave around the third cone, which is the high point of the L, changes directions, comes back around that second cone and finishes. Record? 6.28 seconds. You'd have to see the video of that. That's crazy. And then there's two shuttle runs, um, a 5-10-5 shuttle run. This is tests lateral quickness and explosion in short areas. Athlete starts in a three-point stance. That's two hands, uh, two feet, one hand. Two hands, one feet. That'd be funny, too. Uh, starts in a three-point stance, explodes out either five yards to his right or 15 yards to his right, touches a line, goes back 10 or 30 yards to the left, touches the line, pivot, and he turns five or 15 more yards and finishes. Record, 3.81 seconds for the 20-yard, 10.71 seconds for the 60-yard. That is unbelievable. All of those things are unbelievable, especially the records. All that's to say that some very impressive people, and only very impressive people, get invited to the NFL Combine. And when they get invited, they do some very impressive things. Out of the 12,000-plus Division I college players in the nation, a little over 300 people get combine invites. They're the best of the best. And not even all of them will end up getting drafted or make the NFL. But it is saying something pretty significant to even get invited to the combine. If you do the math, that 300 out of 12,000 plus, that puts you in the top 2 to 3% of all the athletes in college football. If you get invited to the combine, you are physically, footbally, the best of the best. And that's how our world functions, isn't it? 
We celebrate excellence in a lot of different ways, and I think rightfully so. Nothing wrong with excellence. People with excellent intellect, people with excellent physical skills, people with excellent potential, they should all be celebrated and sought after. But what about the kingdom of God? Is this how God operates? Does God just call the best of the best? Is God just after the smartest of the smart? The richest of the rich? Does God have a combine? Well, we see Jesus today seeking out and sending out 12 men, His disciples. What are the qualifications He's looking for? What catches His eye? Is He picking the excellent people around Him? Well, like like is the case more often than not in the kingdom of heaven, it ain't that so much, okay? Which is good news for us, by the way. So let's see what Jesus does as we move into Matthew chapter 10 this morning. We'll be reading verses 1 to 4. And this is like, it's like Ezra and Nehemiah again. We've got a list of names, right? It's not quite as difficult as that list of names, those list of names for us. So if you would stand as we read Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, and we proclaim as we stand, we believe that these are the very words of God recorded for us so that we can know Him and His ways. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray. Father, we need your help to discern what this text says, what it means, and what it means for our lives today. And the most important thing is, God, what are you saying? What have you said? And what does your Spirit need to do to help apply it to our lives today? We ask these questions and ask for your help in it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so we come to a new chapter and a new section in our study of Matthew's Gospel. So we're starting into chapter 10, obviously, having just come out of chapters 8 and 9. 8, 9, 10. See how that works? And in chapters 8 and 9, Jesus was showing His messianic powers, really giving His qualifications through miracles of healing, deliverance from demons, mastery over the natural world, and more and more and more. Now, chapter 10... This, does, this, this, is a, this marks a transition here, okay? Chapter 10 will be the second out of the five major discourses that Jesus gives in Matthew. What was the first one? Sermon on the Mount. Okay, that was the first one. Chapters 5, 6, and 7. We spent a lot of time there. That was the first of the five. Today starts us into the second of these five major discourses that Jesus gives in the book of Matthew. Now, in chapters 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, in that message, Jesus gave the basics of what the citizens of the kingdom of heaven look like. Again, they weren't qualifications to get there. He was saying this is what it looks like to exist, to live in the kingdom of heaven. Then Jesus showed that kingdom in action through His miracles and His teachings in chapters 8 and 9. Now... As we move into this discourse of chapter 10, Jesus is going to transfer this kingdom life and this kingdom mission to His disciples. This is a major turn. This is a major event. We had ended chapter 9 last week with Jesus telling His disciples to do what? To pray and ask God to send laborers out into this plentiful harvest because the laborers were few. So He said, pray, ask God to thrust Fourth laborers into this harvest. He said the harvest was plentiful, the workers are few. And as we come to chapter 10, God's answering those prayers. And He's answering it through the guys who prayed it. The very disciples that we talked about last week. So we're going to meet them today in full force. I hope that you're going to learn some things about these individuals that you never knew before. And I hope that you're going to see yourself in them as well. So we're going to start in verse 1. 
And he called to him, Jesus called to him, his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Jesus called his disciples to him. And we see here for the first time that there are how many of these disciples? Twelve. This is the first time the twelve are mentioned. We've seen disciples over and over and over again. We've talked about the crowds and such. But this is the first time in Matthew that we see that there are twelve of these guys. Okay. Now the crowds followed Jesus around and plenty of folks in the crowds were disciples of Jesus. We've talked about this before. If you can remember, we said before the Sermon on the Mount that there were different types of disciples of Jesus. There were those who were just casual onlookers. Uh, They were people who were fascinated with what Jesus was doing. Uh, We talked about two weeks ago, we called them miracle mongers. They're just kind of like, whoa, look at what this guy can do. This is neat. It's like a show. And it would have been quite a show to follow Jesus and just watch him do the crazy stuff he was doing because he was doing crazy stuff, healing people, delivering people. And some were doing just that, and they would be a casual disciple of Jesus, just learning what he could do. They're just kind of casual onlookers. Others, other people that would call themselves disciples, who would be called disciples, would have followed Jesus around and would have heard him teach and watch him work his miracles, and they would have been those who were genuinely affected by the life, teaching, and working of Jesus. The second group believed his message and would have probably called him Lord, as in Master, not just Sir. We saw that in some of the people who were healed or delivered by him. They even called him Lord at times before he healed them. So it was a proclamation, I believe you're the Messiah. Okay, And then Jesus would heal them. And so there's there's just that kind of next stage discipleship there. And then you have some people that Jesus was specifically pouring into. Now this was a smaller group than both groups we've seen in the crowd. These were people who were directly in contact with Jesus on a consistent basis, either tending to Him and or learning from Him. And now we're not sure the size of this group, but we know at one point that Jesus sent out, it was either 70 or 72, depending on the translations, to go before Him into towns and cities that He would be going into. That's in Luke 10 that we see that. And Jesus gives them authority and power to work miracles and cast out demons. So that shows that there was a smaller group in the crowd and a bigger group than the twelve. And these were serious disciples following Jesus and seeing Jesus and serving Jesus as Lord and Messiah. But we see today that there's a group even more specialized, more intimate than the 70 or the 72. I don't have time to talk about the 70 or 72. Translations vary is what it boils down to. So we've got, a, we've got a more specialized, more intimate group than the 70, and that's the 12. And it's not just the 12, but it's His 12 disciples. Now we kind of treat that as normal because we're on this side of it. We treat it like it's common knowledge. But Jesus, listen to me, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the Messiah on earth, had 12 guys, 12 men that He chose to pour His teaching and His life into. They were the 12 men that He was literally going to change the world with. Literally. And the Holy Spirit, inspiring Matthew to record this, calls them disciples. The word is mathetes. So you see math, E-T-E-S, mathetes. And it means basically a learner, a pupil. Now that clearly implies that these guys were learning from Jesus. Jesus was their rabbi. Jesus was their teacher. And listen, listen, I know I've said this many times before. If you want to know what the focus of Jesus' earthly ministry was, it was these 12 men. They were the focus of Jesus' earthly ministry. All the healings, all the teachings, everything that He was doing from start to finish was for these 12 guys. Now why do I say that? Because he's placing all of his dozen of eggs in one basket. And everything he's doing is to show them who he was so that he could share who he was, what he was doing with them, and then send them out ultimately after he's gone. They're the focus. These 12 men. Not the crowds. Not the 70. Not the 
miracle mongers, not the onlookers who thought Jesus was giving a good show. Jesus was doing what He was doing for these 12 guys. And He's about to give them the same abilities, the same power, the same authority that He had just modeled before sending them out with it. Now imagine Jesus calling these 12 guys and just saying, okay guys, go out and heal and cast out demons and stuff without modeling it for them. They'd have been like, what? Yeah, just go out and basically you can cast out demons and if anybody's sick you can make them well. Now go do that. Well, that wouldn't have worked. They had to see it in action. And they had seen it in action over and over and over. Having seen Jesus do all these things, it would make more sense. He was saying, you go do what I've done. So they've seen, and now, verse 1 says that after He called these twelve to Himself, He, quote, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Anybody ever been commissioned to do something? Anybody ever been given authority from somebody else to go and do something on their behalf? Anybody ever been given authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and the ability to heal every disease and every affliction? I have not. Wow. Can you imagine being there that day? Jesus, okay guys, here's what's going to happen. I know you've been praying that God would send out workers into the field. Guess what? Here you are. Now I'm going to send you... And I want you to go out and I want you to cast out demons. I'm going to give you authority to do that. And I'm going to give you authority to heal every disease and every affliction. Now they knew he could do these things. They'd seen him do it over and over. And now he's giving them authority. Now get a hold of this. He is giving them his authority to do what he had been doing. And we saw last week... Chapter 4 and chapter 9 told us what Jesus had been doing. Chapter 4, and He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Matthew 9.35 echoes that. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And now He's calling on them to do the same thing. He's modeled it for them. He's taken them along with Him and they've watched and they've listened and they've taken it all in. But now He's calling on them to work out what they've taken in. By now, they have to know that Jesus has authority to do these things, right? And if He has this authority, He can share it with them, right? And that's what they have to process now. He has the authority and now He gave that same authority to them. Now don't don't miss that. They're not going out with a Jesus light model. Like kind of some of Jesus. They're not going out and and, and with some sort of, uh, I want you to do kind of things like I've been doing, sort of maybe. Jesus is saying, I'm giving you my authority. I'm giving you my power. Don't miss that. Jesus gave them His authority. Now Jesus didn't lose His authority when He shared that authority with them. The authority is Jesus' authority. The Messiah, God in the flesh, won't ever lose that authority. Ever. But, but, please listen, He can share that with others of His choosing. Some of you are getting nervous. (laughs) And He is choosing to share that authority here with these 12 men. Authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. It's sweeping in its scope. It's awesome in its power. The ability to cast out demons or unclean spirits and the ability to heal every disease and every affliction. The demons, the disease, the sicknesses, the afflictions, they all answer to Jesus. And now... They're going to answer to these 12 men as well. Wow. So these guys must have just been the best of the best, right? They just must have been spiritual giants, right? Something special about them. Combine type guys, right? They're like running 40s and Jesus is like, you're awesome, Peter. 4.3. 
No. Let's look at them. I'm going to read the, the, the list again. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew his brother. James the son of Zebedee and John his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew the tax collector. James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So here's the list. Now we're going to take a look at them individually. What the Bible says about them. We're going to put them in the context of the group and the list. And then we're going to see what ultimately happened to them. Okay? To see what kind of special people Jesus chose to share His authority with. First, Simon Peter. Ah, Peter. Peter is mentioned first in every list of the twelve in the Bible. There's four lists. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts list the apostles. And in every one of them... Peter is mentioned first. Matthew even says back here in verse 2, first Simon, who was called Peter. Now it wouldn't seem that this is either accidental or incidental. He was first. He was not the first called, but he was usually the first to talk, the first to react, the first to be rebuked, out in front of just about in just about everything and every time that he's mentioned, Peter, 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 then Peter said, then Peter, Peter, Peter. We know that he was Andrew's brother, that he had a, na- a dad named John or Jonah. Jesus calls him Simon Bar Jonah. We know that he's married because we've already come in contact with his mother-in-law when Jesus healed her of her fever. He lived in Capernaum and he was a fisherman. And we also know that after Jesus died and was resurrected, Peter went back to fishing, at least for one fruitless night. And we know that it was Jesus who had said that he, Simon, would be called Cephas, which is Peter. Now that's an impressive resume, right? Um, Oh, okay. Not so much, right? Not very impressive. Some fishermen who talk too much. I'm not a fisherman, but I do talk too much, so... Okay, so first body on this, not very special here, okay? Maybe somebody else is. Who's next? Andrew. What do we know about Andrew? From the Bible, we know that he was a disciple of John the Baptist who had been referred to Jesus by John. After John said Jesus was the Lamb of God, Andrew, who was John's disciple, began following Jesus. It was Andrew who then went and found Simon Peter, his brother, and said, We have found the Messiah. And Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. Andrew too was a fisherman. In John 12, some Greeks come to Philip seeking, asking to see Jesus and Philip brings them to Andrew who then takes them to Jesus. Andrew seems to have a habit of bringing people to Jesus after he was referred to Jesus by John the Baptist. Andrew was the one who brought the little boy with the lunch of fish and bread that Jesus used to feed the multitudes in John 6. And we don't really know a whole lot else about Andrew from the Scriptures. He was a disciple of John the Baptist... John said, there's the Lamb of God, and Andrew went after him. And he was a fisherman, and he was Peter's brother. Okay. Not much special there either, right? Maybe James has some qualities. James is next. We know that James had a dad named Zebedee. He was a fisherman, and he was brother to John, who we'll talk about in a minute. He was in a boat mending nets, when Jesus walked by and called G- J- uh, James to follow him. Was he like mending nets like nobody ever mended nets? Was Jesus like, wow, look at those nets. I've never seen nets mended so well. We don't have that implied anywhere in Scripture. Jesus is walking by. James is mending nets. Jesus says, follow me. James, with Peter and John, formed the inner circle of Jesus, the inner three of the twelve even. They were the three who saw some of the miracles that others didn't see. James was, with, James was with Jesus and Peter and John when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. We saw that earlier in Matthew. And the same three disciples were on the Mount of Transfiguration without everybody else. So there was something special about James, but only because Jesus chose to make him part of that special inner circle. We just don't know anything else about him. Nothing special, nothing that made him stand out. He's men in nets. Now we do know from the Bible, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, that James was the first of the twelve to be martyred. Acts 12, 1 and 2 says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. But Jesus didn't call him. 
because he'd been killed for him. So I think we're seeing a pattern here, right? Not much that would catch anybody's eye special. Just another Galilean fisherman. But, but John's next. I bet he was special, right? Of course, the Bible has a lot to say about John. We've already seen that he was James's brother. His dad was Zebedee. He was a fisherman. He and James were given the name Sons of Thunder from Mark's list of the twelve. In Mark 3.17 it says this, James the son of Zebedee and John the brother of James to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is Sons of Thunder. Most people believe this means that James and John had fiery temperaments. Now let me give you an example of that temperament. They asked Jesus at one point, let's just read it. Luke 9, 52-55. And he sent messengers, Jesus did, ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. So in his flesh, it seems like John was like one of these guys. John would take you to court and sue you because you did him wrong or something like that. Or he'd just call down fire from heaven and burn you up if you didn't receive him. That's not very special, is it? So John was a little thunderous. But it doesn't seem like Jesus was very fond of that characteristic because he turned and rebuked him. He must have been a deacon. So he's just another grumpy fisherman. Okay? Philip. Philip's next. Bible says this about Philip. John 1, 43-44. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip, here's some qualifications, was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. That's it. He was from Huntington. That's it. That's quite a resume, isn't it? Tell us a little bit about yourself while I'm from Bethsaida. Andrew and Peter live there too. (laughs) Any special skills? I'm I'm from Bethsaida. (laughs) Jesus found him and told him to follow him. And he was from Bethsaida. Well, okay. John 6, 5 through 7, shows some interaction with Philip, which tells us a little bit about him. Lifting up his eyes, Jesus, then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, Um, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough to re- for each of them to get a little. Thank you, Philip for your ingenious math skills. That helps me zero. (laughs) And then John 14, 8 and 9, Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? This is right before Jesus is going to be crucified. And Philip still doesn't have a clue. But he knows that 200 dinner hour worth of bread is not enough for all these people to even get a little. He's a sharp one. And that's what it says about Philip. He knows how much money won't be enough to feed a bunch of people. And he doesn't know that Jesus is God in the flesh near the end of Jesus' life. Doesn't really show much special talent, does it? So we're 0 for 5 in specialness, okay, so far, just if you're keeping score. Next, Bartholomew. He's my favorite as far as qualifications. You ready? Bartholomew was also named Nathaniel, two names, and he's referred to in John 1. You want to see his qualifications? Here you go. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How how do you know me? It's kind of like creepy, freak. Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. (laughs) Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree? Do you believe? 
you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. These guys are dim, okay? (laughs) So his qualification, Jesus saw him under a tree. (laughs) Well, in fairness, Jesus does call him an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. But he doubted that anything good could come from Nazareth, which showed that he had prejudice in his life. And that's about all we know from the Bible about him. Who's next? Thomas. Uh, Everybody knows Thomas, right? What's he most famous for? Doubting. Right. (laughs) We don't have much info about Thomas' calling. We only know that he's called Didymus or the twin, which would infer that he probably had a twin. Probably. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe he just acted like whoever he was beside. I don't know. And then later, after being a disciple, he does say this in John 11. I like this. Jesus is going up to Judea and, and they're afraid. Um, that they're seeking to kill him. And Jesus says, uh, oh, that's not the right passage. Anyway, I I don't have it all is what's going on. Jesus is saying, we're going to go up so that you might believe. And in verse 16, Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So at some point, Thomas is developing some chutzpah. Well, later he doubts, but you know. The next time we see him is when he doubts. And he doubts that Jesus really showed himself to the disciples not having been there when Jesus showed up in the room that they were locked in after Jesus was resurrected. And Thomas says blatantly, I will not believe unless I touch his scars and put my hand in his side. I get it. Jesus does show up when Thomas is there, tells Thomas to do just that, and Thomas bows down before him and believes. But again, there's just not much meat there, especially qualification-wise. This guy's a twin. That's neat. I want him in my band. You know, that's, that's, that's all we got from him. Next we got Matthew, the author of the gospel that we're studying. We met Matthew in his gospel in chapter 9. He was a hated tax collector. Again, not a very good qualifier here. He was hated by his countrymen. He was probably greedy. He was rich and he was sold out to Rome. He's also called Levi, the son of Alphaeus by Mark and Luke. He has no religious standing, actually probably having been barred from the synagogue since he was a hated publican. Again, Jesus... Are you sure that these are your guys? That's eight of them. We ain't seen much so far. Four more. James, the son of Alphaeus. He may have been Matthew's brother. We talked about when we met Matthew in chapter 9 with Matthew having maybe been disowned by his family for becoming a tax collector. But James, the son of Alphaeus, refers to, is referred to in Mark 1540. Here's a good one. They were also women looking on from a distance. Uh, that's, oh, yeah, that's right. Among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. Some people say Salome. I don't know. So here he's called James the Younger. Some translations say James the Less. And that's what we know of him. <laughs> that he's, his dad's named Alphaeus and he is less, he, which could mean that he's either younger. It could also mean that he was of lesser importance than the other James. But that's all we know. But Jesus chose him. Why? Don't know. Next, Thaddeus. Not much here at all, except that he was called by two other names in the Bible. Lebius and Judas. Parenthesis, not Iscariot. Pretty sad when all that you're known for is who you're not, right? Will Smith. Not the Will Smith. I say horse feathers. This is the Will Smith right here. This is Judas, Thaddeus, Lebius, Judas, not Iscariot. We see something from him in John 14, 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to Jesus, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Just, just an honest question. And that's literally all the Bible says about him. So again, no major qualifiers here. Two more. Simon the Zealot, not much known here except the qualifier of the Zealot, which probably means that he was part of the political group known as the Zealots who were working for Jewish independence from Rome, starting riots and promising to kill any Jew who had sworn allegiance to Rome. So now Jesus has got a fanatic on his team. A troublemaker. Congratulations. That's all we really know about him. And the last one, Judas Iscariot. Yeah, that guy. We don't know anything about his calling... But the fact that he was referred to as Judas Iscariot either means he was from the region of Kerioth 
Or he was part of a group called the Sicarii, which carried knives called Sicarii, with plans to kill and free Israel from Rome. We know from John 12 that Judas was the treasurer of the group and stole money from the money bag that he carried. And we know that he ends up betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Again, not a stellar pick, Jesus. That's not a combine type of guy. This guy's a thief. So there's Jesus' team. These are the men that Jesus is sharing his authority with. Say what? This is not a combine-like team of folks. This, this is not the best of the best. But these are the twelve that Jesus shared his authority with and sent out. It seems that he sent them out in teams of two, which agrees with what he did with the 70 in Luke. He sends, it, says, it refers to them back in our passage today as Peter and Andrew, a team of brothers. James and John, another brother team. Philip and Bartholomew, who seem to be good friends since Philip found Bartholomew in John's account. Thomas and Matthew, the doubter and the tax collector. James the less and Thaddeus, so the less and the one with three names. You know, nothing going on there. And then Simon and Judas, two political activists, the zealot and the assassin turned betrayer. There's your team of twelve divided in twos. Six teams going out with the authority of Jesus to heal and to deliver and to cast out demons. Quite a crew, huh? What in the world commended these guys to Jesus? Well, from what we've seen, the answer is absolutely nothing. Nothing. Except the fact that they weren't excellent. They weren't outstanding. They weren't spectacular. They had done nothing that would set them apart as the people that Jesus should share His authority with and send out. But Jesus did. Jesus chose these 12 men and I think it's Mark... I don't know. I shouldn't say that. In one gospel it says that Jesus prayed all night and then chose these 12 guys. Prayed all night and this is what He came up with. This is what God led him to do. Because Jesus said, I don't do anything unless I see the Father doing it. So he spends all night, God, which 12 is it? And God says, Jesus is like, okay. And Jesus chose these 12 men and made them his disciples. He took them with him, he taught them, and he showed his glory to them to model for them what he would appoint them to go out and do. And in doing so, in sending them... They went from being just disciples to being known as, verse 2 tells us, apostles. Now these are the apostles that were sent out. Now that's a very important word. Disciple means learner. Apostle means a delegate, a messenger, one sent forth with orders. And in the Roman world at that time, when the apostles spoke, they spoke the very words of the one who sent them. I've used this illustration many times, but it works. If I tell Asa to go up and tell John to clean his room, well, John ain't going to do what Asa tells him to do. But if Asa says, Dad says, clean your room, oh, well, that's different. He's carrying Dad's word, not just his own word. These men are carrying the very authority of Jesus. So when an apostle spoke, when an apostle acted, it was with the authority of the sender. So Jesus sends these 12 apostles out and He gives them His authority to go forth and to do what He has done in His power with His authority. They were literally doing the work of Jesus. And Jesus designed it this way. Jesus just multiplied His ministry, His earthly ministry, times 12. Now, Jesus' power and authority could literally be in 13 places at once. And as cool as that is, Jesus did this as a very meager beginning of His sending ministry. Remember, God's covenant with Abraham way back in Genesis was going to bless the whole earth. 
David's descendant who would sit forever on the throne that God had ordained would sit on the throne of God's people which included the whole earth. Jesus was the original apostle. He was sent into the world to herald the good news of the kingdom of the heavens. And He's beginning His worldwide conquest with these 12 men here in Matthew 10. This is a monumental moment in the history of the world. And Jesus does it with 12 no-name, picked last on the playground type of men. Why? So man don't get no glory. So God alone can be seen as the power and authority behind all of this. Not the religious elite, not the politically powerful, not the upper crust of society. Fishermen, fringe revolutionaries, outcasts, the hated and the dismissed. Yeah, come to think of it, that does merit a dream team to God. This is how He's always worked. Create a vast universe and pick a tiny little planet floating around in it and dwell with a creature He made out of dust on it. Choose an obscure moon worshiper with a barren wife and relocate them to a tiny strip of land and plant him there and say, I'm going to bless the entire earth through you and your descendants. Pick a scheming younger twin to bless for no particular reason. Think Jacob. Deliver a bunch of slaves from the greatest nation and civilization the world has ever seen through a guy who can't talk. Pick a little kid shepherd to be the king of this great nation. Send his son to be born from the womb of a lowly virgin girl. Have that son killed on a Roman cross, stripped, humiliated, and discarded. Yeah, now that we think about it, these 12 guys were serious combine material for God because they were nothing. They were nobodies. They were completely incapable. They were a mess. They were sinners. And that's where God does His best work. And He did. We're going to see through the rest of chapter 10 how Jesus prepares them for what they're about to do. It's not good news. Yeah, they got authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick, and they are in for a hard road. Chapter 10 is very sobering for the disciple of Jesus Christ. Now my question is, how did these 12 end up? Well, we know that Judas betrayed Jesus and hung himself... But we know that even that was always a part of God's plan. John six seventy. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Matthew twenty six twenty four. The Son of Man goes as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus knew what was going to happen with Judas when He chose him. Sounds like Romans 8.28, doesn't it? He causes all things to work together for the good of those who are the called according to His purpose. So we know that about Judas. And we also know that the rest of these guys, the other 11, finished their race by laying down their lives for Jesus. We saw already that James was the first of them killed by Herod by the sword around 45 AD. Philip, it says, history and uh, tradition tell us, not capital T tradition, Philip was tortured and crucified in Phrygia, which is north of Israel, around 54 AD, tortured and crucified. Matthew, it says, was beheaded in Nadavar, Ethiopia, sometime between 60 and 70 A.D. James the Lesser actually became the head of the Jerusalem church. The last shall become the first, right? He was said to have been taken to the top of the temple and thrown off of there and killed around 63 A.D. Peter would tell those who sought to crucify him that he wasn't worthy to die like his Lord, so they crucified him upside down around 64 A.D. 
Peter's brother Andrew went to the Scythians and the Thracians over toward Greece to tell them about Jesus and he was crucified and then hanged on an olive tree around 70 AD. They say that you can see the tomb of Thomas in an obscure town in India where he was pierced with spears, tortured with red hot plates and burned alive around 70 AD. Bartholomew or Nathaniel is said to have been flayed and then crucified around 70 AD. Judas Thabius Lebius, the three-named guy, went to the pagans in Mesopotamia and was said to have been beaten to death with sticks in 72 AD. Simon the Zealot is said to have traveled extensively, proclaiming Jesus as the Christ in Persia, Africa, and possibly even Britain. And though the method is not known, he is said to have been martyred in Syria after a proclamation of the governor there. And that leaves John, who tradition says was dipped in boiling oil to kill him, but it didn't kill him. So he didn't die, but he lived out the last years of his life exiled on the island of Patmos, where he would receive one last message from Jesus after Jesus had ascended, which is the last book of our Bible, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's where they ended up. These losers, these nobodies. This anything but dream team. Wow. So then what? How do we apply this passage? How do we apply this historical account of these 12 men being sent out? Well, there's a supernatural progression that we see today which sets the pattern for what our Christian lives will look like. Disciple, apostle, martyr. That's our three application points. Disciple, apostle, martyr. And these are steps in our Christian lives And this is going to happen. Okay? The first step is a disciple. The first step in any Christian life is to become a disciple. Anyone who trusts Jesus to save them becomes his disciple. That means that this person is learning from Jesus what his or her new life is to look like. They're seeing Jesus and learning what He is about and how He operates, just like the disciples we saw in our list today. Listen to me. You cannot progress in your Christian life if you are not learning about and from Jesus. You can't. You can't progress unless you're learning about and from Jesus, who is your Savior and your example for how to live. The very point of the disciple's life is to become like Jesus. Jesus says it this way in Luke 6.40, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Christian, believer, follower, disciple of Jesus, you are called to be like your teacher. How are you doing there? And we've seen that in the life of the twelve up to this point. Now the question is, how do we do that? Now they followed him around. He walked from town to town and wherever he went, they went with him. And the mindset of a disciple, it says they wanted to be so close that the dust of the rabbi kicked up on them. They wanted to be so close to him that the dust of the rabbi covered them. How do we do that? Mark 3.14, I love this. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach. We actually see the disciples being with Jesus. And we are called to do what then? We are called to be with Jesus. We have to be with him. We have to walk with Him. We have to talk with Him. We have to follow Him. We have to do what we have to do to be with Him. Whenever, wherever, however. To be with Jesus. To learn from Him. Let me give you some practical ways you can do that. Your Bible. The church. Worship. Singing to Him. 
listening to preaching, good biblical preaching, and asking in every situation, Jesus, help me to know that you are here with me. Help me to live in your presence. Help me to be with you because you said that you would always be with me. Do you live your life in light of the truth that you are always with Jesus? An observation, yes. An understanding, yes. That right now, all of us are with Jesus. When you go to your job tomorrow, you're with Jesus. When you're at your home tomorrow, you're with Jesus. When you're at school tomorrow, you're with Jesus. We learn from Him as we are with Him. And we see Him work in our situation. We talked about this some Wednesday night through the providences of our lives. And we put it all together after we look at it and we say, that was Jesus. And we learn from Him and say, I want to be like that. I want to be like you, Jesus. I want to be with you to love and to serve you. That's exactly what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Are you a disciple of Jesus? If you are, you will follow Him. You will learn from Him. And what should follow discipleship? And the answer is apostolic work. So the second application point is apostle. Now before some of you come up here and sew my mouth shut, let me be clear. Okay? These 12 guys in our list today were the original apostles. Judas killed himself, and the remaining apostles appointed a guy named Matthias to take his office. They cast lots to do that. God, however, appointed a guy named Saul of Tarsus, who we call Paul, to be an apostle after Jesus had died and was resurrected and ascended. He showed himself to Paul and said, you're my guy. And Paul said, I received the gospel that I received directly as a revelation from Jesus Christ. So these 12 men the eleven and Paul, were apostles of Jesus Christ. They were commissioned to carry the words, teachings, and the authority of Jesus Christ Himself. To hear them speak on the things of God was to hear Jesus speak on the things of God. And listen to me, there were no other apostles after these twelve. You meet some guy on the street and tell, who tells you he's an apostle, run. Don't bicker with them. Don't try to convince them to run. Run. Get away from them. So I want that to be clear as we move into this application point. There were 12 men who were apostles of Jesus Christ who spoke the very words of God. And no more. And the last one died almost 2,000 years ago. And everything that we need that they spoke of is found in your Bible. Okay? So, when I speak of the next stage of our disciple process being apostolic work, I'm not talking about being one of the twelve. It's not what I'm saying. They were specifically commissioned to do this work that Jesus commissioned them to do. He sent these twelve men out in our passage today to do His work. And then He sent them after He ascended into heaven. And now in heaven, Jesus sends us out. To do what? To work. You can't just learn all the time. Herb Hodges said, a statue of a modern day Christian would have a tiny, tiny body and a real big head. A head all full of knowledge, but a body that's not capable of doing anything. we got to work! Jesus called them apostles as He sent them out. Well, guess what? He has sent us out too to do His work, to work. And we do not have the same commission to heal every disease and to have power over unclean spirits, but we do have a specific work to do. What is that work? And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the work! Everything else revolves around this. 
You say, well, that was just to the disciples there on the hill. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. This was always to be the work and it will always be the work until Jesus comes back and the age is over. You learn from Jesus as a disciple. He sends you out in an apostolic way to do this work. There is one command in these three verses and that command is to make disciples. Going is not a command. Baptizing is not a command. Teaching is not a command. Those are participles that tell us how we accomplish this one command. One command in this apostolic task that we're tasked with, and that's to make disciples. Turn people into disciples who will then be commissioned to do the same. Christian, disciple of Jesus, you are sent by the authoritative word of Jesus Christ Himself. You are commissioned to turn people into disciples. Going, baptizing, and teaching all with Jesus who is always with us to the end of the age. Again, how are you doing? You should be learning and you should be turning people into disciples. That's the apostolic commission in your life. I think I'll just go back to fishing. It's not going to work. And where should this apostolic commissioning lead us to? It leads us to martyrdom. Last point is martyr. Disciple, apostle, martyr. And that's ultimately what we see in these men. They laid their lives down for the call of their master. They were called to be disciples. They were sent out as apostles. And it led them to their death. Well, that's uplifting. Let's go have lunch. It will lead us to the same. Whether it's quickly or not, our witnessing for Jesus will lead to our death, either physically or just our undoing. Not everybody's going to die for Jesus, but everybody has to lay their life down for Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Jesus said that if anyone would be his disciple, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? To follow Jesus, listen to me, to be His disciple, to be sent out to do His work, you have to die. You have to die. You have to renounce your rights, your privileges, your desires, your dreams, your ambitions. You have to renounce and denounce yourself. You have to die. And I'm not telling you to take your own life. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying to take your life and lay it down. And say, not me, but you, Jesus. Not my will, but yours be done. But this losing of our lives, Jesus says, leads us to truly finding it. And that is what these 12 men knew. And it led them to willingly, joyfully, powerfully lay down their lives when it was all said and done. You want to flay me? Flay me. You want to pierce me with spears? Pierce me with spears. You want to torture me with hot plates? Torture me with hot plates. You want to hang me upside down and crucify me? Do it. Because I don't have any rights. And if you're telling me I've got to choose between death and shutting up about Jesus... Kill me. We don't know what this is about in modern day comfortable America. And it's happening out there every day. In the thousands, tens of thousands of people laying down their lives because they can't shut up about Jesus. 
Genuine Christian living leads to death. In the kingdom of heaven, death precedes life. And while this life may lead to physical death and will lead to a death of our desires, it ultimately leads to life everlasting in the presence of the very Christ who sent us out and called us to be His disciple. It ultimately leads to our souls being saved. It ultimately leads to eternal wealth and joy in heaven and in eternity and abundant life in the here and now. First century, they were fond of saying, look how those Christians die. Celebrating, singing hymns as they marched to the pole that they would time to and burn them alive. Worshiping in the midst of the flames. Well, listen, I'm not saying this to condemn you. I'm not saying this to scare you. I'm saying this to give you a living hope that helps you to lay your life down. That helps you to say no to your comfort and your riches and know that Jesus is better. You can't do that unless you're dead. Help my heart believe. It's about abundant life here and eternal life there. Death leading to life. The ultimate promise from the King of the heavens is that you will find your life when you lay it down. And what do we have to do to be in this elite called group of people. Is it just for special people? The best of the best? The high and the mighty? The elite? The combine-like folks who are peak performers? <laughs> no, no, no. Jesus calls fishermen. Some guys are like, yeah, I'll make it. Jesus calls tax collectors. Jesus calls the outcast, the marginalized, the reject, the no-name, the traitor, the guy under the tree. Jesus calls you and Jesus calls me. Not because of anything that you have done, but because of the grace of God who calls us out of a love that He had for us before the foundation of the world. He calls us. He commissions us. And He says, lay your life down that you might find true, abundant life. He calls, we follow, He sends, we make disciples. He demands our lives and we joyously lay them down. And He gives them back to us in ways that we could never imagine before He called us. And He knows our faults. He knows our temptations. He knows our tendencies. Tracy shared on Facebook the other day a quote that said, When God put a calling on your life, He already factored in your stupidity. Most comforting thing I've ever heard, it said. He knew it. And He said, I want you. As we sang, I'll finish here. As we sang and David said that about the song, All we have, all we need. All we want is you. It's the very progression we just looked at. As a disciple, Jesus, you're all I have. As an apostle, Jesus, you're all I need. And as a martyr, Jesus, you're all I want. All I have, all I need, all I want is you. Don't leave here condemned thinking, well, I don't really feel that way today. Leave here with hope knowing that Jesus has taken you there. And listen, there's nothing better. Nothing better. He knows. He knew. And He called us. He sent us. He goes with us for His glory and our good in His authority. Just like these 12 guys that we saw today. Let's pray. Jesus, all we have, all we need, all we want is you. Make my heart believe. Help us to turn our eyes on you, to look full in your wonderful face. And God, please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, let the things of this earth grow strangely dim. 
in the light of your glory and grace. You have called us, you have commissioned us, and you have told us that we will lay our lives down and that you will give it back to us in ways we never imagined. Praise your wisdom, God. I praise your authority. I praise your power and ask that it be manifested in my life and in the lives of these people. Jesus, save those who don't know you. Show them their need for you. Show them that they are sinners and they need forgiveness and that only comes through the blood that you shed on that Roman cross when you laid your life down. But you didn't stay dead. You came out of the grave and then you ascended into heaven where you reign over all things and one day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that you are Lord Jesus to the glory of God the Father. There's somebody here who doesn't know that this afternoon. God, breathe life into them. Give them that revelation and save them. We love you, God, because you loved us first. When we were nothing. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm going to give you a benediction, so please stand for that, but don't disappear because we've got a covenant to sign up here. Here's the benediction. Now, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a seat if you would.